Hi, everyone, and welcome to Conversations with B'nai Brith. I'm CEO Dan Mariashi. A quick but important note before our interview, the B'nai Brith podcast is now Conversations with B'nai Brith. You'll be able to listen to and watch all of the programs wherever you get your podcasts, including on YouTube, Facebook, Apple Podcasts, and more. Now, if you enjoy this program, follow or subscribe to Conversations with B'nai Brith wherever you get your podcasts, and please rate us too. We always appreciate the feedback. And of course, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel and like us on Facebook for our latest content. Well, today I'll be speaking with Dr. Edita Gavron about B'nai B'rith's storied history in Poland before and leading up to World War II in the larger context of Poland's Jewish history and the interconnectedness of Polish and Jewish histories going back centuries. Dr. Edita Gavron is an assistant professor at the Institute of Jewish Studies, part of the Jagiellonian University in Krakow, and is a chair of the European Holocaust Research Infrastructure's Scientific Advisory Board. She's also president of the management board of the Galicia Jewish Heritage Institute Foundation of the Galicia Jewish Museum, and since 2013, an expert for the European Commission. She previously served as the director of the Center for the Study of History and Culture of Krakow Jews from 2009 to 2017. Dr. Gavron is an expert on the 20th century history of Polish Jewry and Holocaust studies, as well as the contemporary Jewish diaspora. She has curated several exhibitions and museums, including Helena Rubinstein, First Lady of Beauty at the Galicia Jewish Museum, and has authored dozens of works on the Holocaust and post-Holocaust history of the Jews in Poland, such as Revival and Rethinking Jewishness, The Challenges of Contemporary Jewish Communities in Central Europe. Dr. Gavron, welcome. We appreciate your being here. Hello, it's a pleasure to be with you uh, today. And good to see you again, because uh, not too long ago, uh, we had a chance to meet in Warsaw, uh, where there was an important conference uh, commemorating the 100th anniversary of B'nai B'rith in Poland. Well, let's start with how you got here, your journey. Tell us a bit about your background and what led you to focus on research uh, on the modern Jewish history of Poland, which began in the late 19th century. And talk about your own hometown as it pertains to your interest in Poland's Jewish history and whether its uh, residents are interested in locating and preserving its Jewish heritage. Was there a Jewish community there when, when you were growing up? All of that in the first question. It's a long story, but of course, it's, uh, uh, it's a pleasure to talk about how it started. Uh, uh, when I was uh, uh, a teenager, I was really surprised uh, not to learn too much uh, from the textbook and from uh, my teachers about the Jewish history of my hometown. Uh, so when starting my uh, um, academic uh, uh, career or being a student and uh, starting my research, uh, um, I decided to focus on history and I picked up the Jewish history and my first work and in fact my first book was about the history of uh, the Jewish community in my hometown. Uh, its name is Wostowa, uh, its uh, uh, Yiddish name is uh, Vlodsheva uh, and it used to be a, quite a big shtetl before the Second World War but unfortunately uh, no community, uh, no proper community uh, survived uh, the Holocaust. Uh, there were only single families 
uh, that survive and never re-established the community after the war. Uh, so uh, my research uh, continues and uh, uh, I've been living in Krakow for over 30 years. So now I'm working uh, mostly on the history of Jews in Krakow. Well, you've been involved in the planning of a number of Jewish museums. Uh, how did you become involved in that part of this very important work, the work of history? Yes, being a historian, being an academic, working at the university, I've noticed the shortage of the audience. I mean, we have the groups of students, but of course, there is also a much wider audience available and ready to learn, ready to study outside of the university, especially in Krakow, when the Jewish history was rediscovered in the 1990s. And there was a group of guides, professionals who wanted to study whatever uh, was related to the Jewish history of uh, the city. And certainly uh, there was no proper exhibition on the Jewish history in uh, town. So several museums started to organize temporary exhibitions uh, on the topic related to the Jewish uh, community, uh, both in Krakow and Galicia, a little bit wider uh, uh, spectrum of uh, Jewish history and heritage. And uh, that's how it started, uh, uh, being a historian, but also being involved in the uh, Galicia Jewish Museum. Uh, uh, I was cooperating with uh, other historians and curators on the first exhibition. Uh, then um, the Museum of the City of Krakow, the Historical Museum of the City of Krakow, organized few exhibitions devoted to the history of the Holocaust. Uh, and uh, um, the story continues. And uh, now I'm also on the board of uh, several museums and hope uh, that we will promote the Jewish history in the uh, very uh, best uh, way possible. Well, before we get to um, the history of B'nai B'rith in Poland and your research about it. Um, I want to talk about um, research. Uh, the Jewish community uh, in Poland before September 1st, 1939, or on September 1st, 1939, it's about 3.3 million Jews. Then you have uh, the Holocaust, the war, communism in Poland until 1989. Um, how much of the archival material, records, city records, municipal records, uh, Jewish communal records, uh, survived all of this, um, this war, uh, tragedy, and turmoil. Well, I cannot give you the exact percentage of uh, the archival records that survive, but certainly depended on the location of the uh, archives and uh, the situation during the Second World War. Uh, several archives, uh, like the archive of the community, Jewish community in Krakow, was, uh, were dispersed, relocated to other cities. Uh, and uh, after the war, it was necessary to locate uh, the parts of the uh, archival materials and uh, trying to move it back to the original location or just to um, make sure that they are safe wherever they were. Uh, so uh, we are talking now about the situation of uh, uh, some archives being completely destroyed, uh, some archives being relocated, and some archives being fragmented. Um, we also have to talk about the uh, relocation outside of Poland. Uh, uh, there, there are some uh, um, 
some documents, some uh, records that uh, were taken uh, away uh, or uh, transported or exchanged, uh, uh, and they are today also uh, abroad. So uh, the archival materials uh, devoted or relevant for the history of uh, Jews in Poland are I would say almost everywhere. I mean, in Poland, in Europe, uh, in the United States, in Israel, and uh, even in Australia. Are more and more of these documents emerging as, as time goes on? I mean, do you hear uh, from somebody in another city, in another country uh, that has access to these documents or possesses them or has seen them? Yes, this is a surprising uh, process that even today, uh, almost 80 years after the Second World War, after the Holocaust, we still find out uh, the documents and there are people who either discover or simply uh, acknowledge the fact that uh, they have, they are in the possession of such documents. And we are talking about uh, more um, uh, formal documentation, but also very personal uh, letters, uh, photographs uh, that were un completely unknown uh, before. Uh, and this is uh, a very precious discovery, no matter what kind of topic and what not, what kind of form uh, it is. Uh, it's uh, very surprising to find the whole books, uh, memories, uh, um, the, the whole folders of uh, documentation, uh, sometimes uh, hidden uh, in the attic or in the basement and uh, discovered only during some um, construction works or uh, uh, selling the apartment or um, whatever um, uh, other circumstances you can imagine. Well, you've examined and written about the primary source documents uh, from B'nai B'rith in Poland. Uh, the story of B'nai B'rith lodges within the Polish boundaries begins in the 1880s, uh, long before the onset of World War I in what was then the Austro-Hungarian uh, Empire. How was B'nai B'rith established in Poland and who were its members? And did the early Zionist movement uh, play a part in leaders' agendas? Uh, or was the organization primarily focused on philanthropic endeavors and, and education? Uh, the first uh, lodges in uh, uh, Polish lands, uh, not in the Polish state, because uh, because Polish state didn't exist at that time, uh, were in fact uh, located in the big cities with a high percentage of Jewish intelligentsia and uh, Jewish entrepreneurs. Uh, and in fact, uh, there were also uh, the same towns, the same cities uh, uh, were quite uh, known for the Zionist initiatives or the beginnings of the Zionist movement at the end of the uh, 19th century. So we are talking about uh, uh, cities like Krakow, Lviv, uh, or uh, in uh, the territory of uh, then uh, German or Prussia, uh, Katowice. Uh, uh, these are the locations of both the uh, initial uh, lodges uh, of Nebrit, but also the initial uh, organizations of Zionist movement. So there was some overlap in the locations. And I think there was also a significant overlap in uh, the members. Uh, when we look at the members of both Nebrit and uh, the Zionist organizations, we see um, uh, at least in part the same leaders. Uh, and we, uh, we also uh, see the joint activities uh, at the turn of the 19th and 20th century. But of course, uh, the um, uh, Nebrit was uh, um, very focused on philanthropic uh, work, uh, intellectual uh, discussions, and uh, supporting uh, uh, the cases for uh, Jewish communities. Uh, so it was not only focused on uh, things uh, Zionist, uh, uh, absolutely 
absolutely not. Uh, there were a lot of initiatives that we can call educational uh, and uh, starting new institutions, organizations that was part of the focus of uh, Pnebrit uh, lodges. Um, when we look at especially two lodges, uh, the one in Krakow and the one in Lviv, uh, they were very specific because uh, most of their members were uh, uh, fluent Polish speakers. Uh, so this also make them uh, the first, uh, uh, as we call them, Polish Jewish lodges, uh, um, unlike uh, other lodges uh, in uh, Upper Silesia or Western territories, uh, even if they become part of Poland later on, the members uh, registered the lodges and uh, mostly spoke spoke German. What was the world of of the Jewish communities at that time like? Um, there must have been many, given the size of the population, uh, in the big cities. And of course, there were hundreds of communities, small small shtetlach and and, and villages, mm -hmm. uh, medium sized cities. But um, there must have been kind of a a, a teeming. Um, Jewish communal life uh, in this period. Tell us a little about what, what we might have, what would we have encountered uh, in the Jewish communities uh, had we lived at that time? Well, absolutely. There was a lot of uh, uh, initiatives, a lot of diversity in uh, uh, these towns where the Jewish community was thriving before um, uh, before the Second World War. But we are talking about the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, such uh, cities like uh, um, Krakow and Lviv, uh, uh, but also later on Warsaw, were known for uh, their large percentage of uh, Jewish population within the city's uh, population. Uh, but they were also known for their diversity. So we have a lot of, uh, on one hand, religious Orthodox organizations, uh, and uh, we have uh, more and more attempts to establish secular uh, political uh, in, uh, organizations within uh, the, the cities, within uh, the regions. Um, of course, uh, um, when we look at the religious life, it was becoming more and more diverse with the Orthodox community, with the progressive community, uh, and with uh, more and more um, uh, prayer houses, uh, uh, little shtiblech that uh, uh, the Jews were uh, feeling more comfortable than in a big uh, uh, synagogues uh, um, uh, central in the city or central in the Jewish quarters. Uh, and of course, uh, at the beginning of the uh, 20th century, we see um, um, the increase uh, of uh, or uh, the the increase in numbers of uh, the political uh, institutions, political organizations, political parties. Uh, so this is uh, another dimension of Jewish life uh, back then. Uh, on top of that, uh, new initiatives, cultural, literary, uh, sport activities uh, that brought uh, completely new aspects to Jewish life, uh, um, almost unknown uh, in the 19th uh, century. Well, let's return to B'nai B'rith. Um, after World War I ended in 1918, borders of Poland were mapped and Dr. Leon Adder would eventually become president of the Grand Lodge of Benebrith in Poland. Uh, but District 13 was not officially established until 1922 or 1923. Actually, 1923, I guess, because we're now commemorating the 100th anniversary yeah. this year. What was the delay? What caused it? 
it was the whole procedure of registering the institution, of going through the process of uh, the administrative uh, uh, um, paperwork and uh, registering the uh, the institution, but also getting the, uh, un the necessary permissions and uh, checks from the local authorities. Uh, we have to uh, we have to remember that this was the initial stage of uh, uh, independent Poland after the First World War. Uh, there was a lot of of uh, um, um, uncertainty about uh, uh, certain organizations and uh, certain initiatives. So the government, uh, both uh, central and local, was checking those uh, new in initiatives uh, um, in uh, the um, proper or even more than proper uh, way. Uh, but uh, but this initiative was successful. Uh, the first talks about uh, establishing uh, Polish uh, uh, lodge uh, um, ended with the success, and uh, uh, the district was confirmed. And uh, uh, Mr. Adder, who was a successful law uh, lawyer, uh, certainly played crucial role in convincing uh, local authorities. Well, emulating Germany's District 8, and I should explain that, that B'nai B'rith internationally was organized on the basis of kind of geographical districts. So emulating Germany's District 8, District 13 boasted pioneering theologians, uh, groundbreaking Jewish historians, uh, some experts in ancient languages. Tell us about some of the members. Who were some of the more notable ones? Um... This was the whole spectrum of uh, uh, lawyers, intellectuals, historians, rabbi, rabbis as well, uh, uh, but also uh, entrepreneur. Um, so the the whole uh, group of people who uh, uh, composed the uh, the um, uh, leadership of Nebrid in Poland. But of course, uh, there were uh, uh, some uh, most notable uh, uh, leaders that are both formally and um, informally uh, visible in Nebrid activities. Uh, um, let me start from uh, Krakow, uh, because that's where I'm based. Uh, certainly, the key role, one of the key roles beside uh, Leon Adas was uh, um, uh, Rabbi Ozai Ston, uh, who played uh, the role of uh, the Zionist leader, but he was also one of the uh, activists uh, um, uh, supporting neighborhood activities and uh, strengthening the educational uh, uh, initiatives in Krakow. Uh, beside uh, him, uh, there were people like uh, like Moises Shore in uh, Warsaw, uh, uh, Marcus Brade, uh, um, or uh, Mayor Balban, uh, the historians who uh, were quite essential in uh, establishing the Institute for Judaic uh, Studies in Warsaw. Uh, and uh, they were uh, certainly not only the intellectuals uh, in the academia work, but they were activists, uh, political activists, uh, strengthening the uh, local Jewish uh, community communities and uh, trying to um, educate the new generation of uh, the Jews. Um, I could make, I could uh, mention uh, many other names. If you basically look at the history of Polish Jews uh, in the interwar period, uh, most of the leaders of the Jewish communities were um, either uh, um, leaders of Nebrith or they were supporting Nebrith or they were taking part in Nebrith activities. So um, it was uh, the elite of the Jewish uh, community in Poland. Schools with a modern and traditional Jewish curriculum uh, for both high school age and college students were founded, uh, founded and administered uh, by the neighborhood leaders in Poland. 
Um, can you tell us about some of these schools and how they fulfilled the vision of scholars whom you mentioned, like Mayor Balaban and, and uh, Moses Shore? And uh, what were their hopes for the next generation of Jewish people in Poland? And did this type of school set any kind of educational precedent? Uh, so certainly the schools either established or supported by Nebrith were uh, focusing on uh, uh, multi-dimensional education or uh, creating the um, open society, supporting the uh, uh, the secular education uh, that was not offered by way too many schools uh, uh, in the 19th century. Uh, so it certainly was uh, the... Um, the wider spectrum of uh, uh, education available in the schools and uh, working together with intellectuals and uh, uh, researchers uh, uh, who at the same time uh, were professors or uh, um, graduates of universities in Poland and abroad uh, made those schools uh, um, uh, known uh, for their high level of education. Uh, and uh, the students of uh, such schools uh, very often uh, mentioned uh, the level of discussions during the classes that it was not that it was unheard of in other schools. Uh, so the high level of education was the priority. The access uh, to well-equipped libraries, uh, the international uh, connections of such schools, uh, this was also the priority. And uh, supporting the students of uh, high schools and secondary schools uh, in joining the universities. Um, this was also the process that demanded uh, special guidance and uh, uh, special support from the teachers of uh, the schools supported by Bnei And we see the continuation at the university. Uh, I mentioned the Institute for Judaic Studies in Warsaw. Uh, in fact, the classes uh, offered by Jewish professors uh, were uh, organized at the uh, at Warsaw University, and uh, Jewish students could join uh, most of the uh, classes um, uh, supported by uh, professors who happened to be the uh, members of Neighborhood. Despite the anti-Semitism that was prevalent in Poland leading up to World War II and earlier. Uh, cosmopolitan centers throughout the country were places where Jews were able to establish careers in the arts, including literature, cinema, theater, as well as in medicine and law, architecture, many other prestigious fields. But as the 1930s progressed, and as we know, the situation grew dire. Um, in fact, the Polish government, um, before the Nazis, closed the B'nai B'rith Lodges in 1938. Can the narrative of the deteriorating situation, which was underway, um, can, you, um, can you trace uh, the surge in prejudice as you, as you look at it now, look, looking back? Uh, could we see, even before 1938, was, were, was the situation leading up uh, to the ultimate curtain falling? Um, towards the end of 1938. Can we track that? Can we see that? Or did it, did it just um, happen uh, that um, ultimately they got around to Benebrith and other organizations and people couldn't necessarily see the worst coming? Um, 
I have to say that uh, um, the uh, closing of Nebrith was not uh, uh, the first step that uh, limited the autonomy of Jewish life in Poland. Uh, there were some events uh, happening even before that, uh, even prior to 1938, that uh, um, either attempted or succeeded uh, in uh, limiting uh, uh, the access of uh, Polish Jews to uh, education or uh, some uh, rights as the citizens in the city. Uh, one of the very first cases that we see in the interwar period in Poland was uh, um, the attempt to limit the number of Jewish students at the universities. Uh, um, some of the universities started to introduce numerous clauses, the limited number of uh, the limited percentage of uh, Jews at the universities. Uh, some went even farther uh, by introducing numerous nullus, which meant uh, no access for Jews uh, in certain faculties or universities. Uh, so this was already happening uh, um, uh, in the uh, in the 1930s prior uh, to the uh, events that led, for example, to the limitation of uh, the access to uh, Shehita, the ritual slaughter in 1936. And uh, uh, there was a long lasting discussion uh, in Polish parliament about, uh, uh, about that. Uh, we had also the cases of boycotting uh, Jewish businesses, uh, limiting uh, the uh, time of uh, uh, their functioning uh, due to the um, compulsory closing of businesses on Sunday. Uh, so there were some cases of uh, limiting the rights of uh, individual Jews, but also Jewish organizations. Um, all of that was happening uh, in part um, influenced or inspired by what was happening in the uh, in Germany in uh, the Third Reich. But some of these initiatives were uh, rather local initiatives uh, um, supported by the uh, right wing uh, political organizations and parties. Well, I'd like to. We're going to come back to Benebrith in a moment. Uh, Benebrith today. Um, but I'd like to briefly touch on your expertise in Holocaust education and what you describe as the game-changing impact of the film Schindler's List. Um, what happened after the film was released in 1993, talking now, generally speaking, and also in Poland, uh, and tell us more about the history of the museum that was opened in the Schindler factory in Krakow. Um, it seems like it's a, a very appropriate place uh, for uh, a museum to be open. Uh, the movie Schindler's List was uh, um, in its most part filmed in Krakow before it was released here. So certainly the whole city was uh, following uh, the process of uh, producing the movie. Uh, and at this stage, it already uh, caused a lot of questions uh, about the Jewish history of the um, uh, city, about the history of the Holocaust, uh, about the places that were uh, that uh, Steven Spielberg was focused on like the ghetto in Krakow or uh, Plashov camp uh, nearby. Uh, so certainly uh, this uh, movie uh, increased uh, interest in all things Jewish in Krakow, in Poland, and being released, being shown internationally, uh, convinced or inspired many people to visit Krakow. Um, that uh, put a lot of pressure on local community, especially on uh, local educators, guides, and uh, in general, tourist market to accommodate all the questions that were asked by the tourists. And since 1993, we can talk about millions of people who have visited 
visited uh, the city because of Schindler's List. Uh, and I, I do not exaggerate because we see how people ask about certain fragments of the film uh, when they visit the places uh, allegedly uh, portrayed in the film. Uh, and uh, there are numerous discussions about whether the location was real or not. Uh, so to make a long story short, this film uh, put Krakow on the map of Jewish tourism, and it put Krakow on the map of uh, uh, anyone who was interested in the Jewish history of uh, Polish Jews, uh, Krakowian Jews in particular. It changed the infrastructure of the city. It, uh, the tourists demanded, you know, the whole new uh, infrastructure uh, and uh, also including uh, the uh, locations shown in the film in the tourist uh, guidebooks and uh, the tours that were offered by the agencies. So today, Krakow um, has uh, the offer that includes not only the royal castle and the old town, but um, the area of the former ghetto Schindler's factory uh, seems to be almost compulsory for every visitor. Uh, on the map uh, of uh, these uh, tourist attractions, we also have a Schindler's factory, uh, which today uh, is uh, mostly the location and few buildings that used to belong to Schindler's factory. And part of it, the administrative building was turned into the historical museum, uh, showing the Second World War. Uh, so the Nazi German occupation of the city of Krakow and the story of Oskar Schindler is just part of it. Why the museum is not uh, totally dedicated to Oskar Schindler and the story of uh, the people he saved. Uh, as uh, the uh, curators, we realized that um, the wider story was needed, uh, that you cannot only put uh, the story of Oskar Schindler uh, and uh, um, over a thousand of Jews he saved uh, in the exhibition because many visitors need the context. What did it mean uh, to live in the city occupied by the Germans? What were the uh, consequences of it? Uh, what were the relations of local population and so on and so on? So this is the, uh, the, uh, the goal of this museum, to show this wider picture uh, so people can understand what happened to the local Jews and why this extraordinary story of uh, Schindler's factory is uh, worth remembering and uh, uh, commemorating at the site. How do you envision, uh, or more specifically, what are your hopes for the future of Holocaust education and how it can have a positive effect on mitigating anti-Semitism and changing attitudes in your own country and around the world. Uh, the spike in anti-Semitism has become global. Um, we see it everywhere. Um, and uh, it would be interesting to have your take on it, uh, not only in terms of confronting contemporary anti-Semitism, but looking ahead, the further we remove ourselves from the Holocaust, um, the, uh, the kind of territory that will be traversed in terms of Holocaust remembrance. So we'd like to have your thoughts on that. Uh, Holocaust education certainly uh, can uh, help uh, to 
make people more sensitive, uh, not only to the history, uh, but also uh, to the events that are happening right now. Uh, we can use uh, Holocaust uh, history uh, uh, and educating about it uh, as the platform to um, make people aware of certain processes of how things started, how uh, anti-Semitism was used as a political tool, uh, how anti-Semitism and uh, anti-Semitic propaganda uh, could uh, divide societies. Uh, so definitely learning certain facts, but also understanding processes uh, that led to the Holocaust uh, can help uh, to uh, hopefully prevent uh, some of the similar uh, events happening uh, today. Uh, we see that Holocaust distortion and Holocaust denial today are uh, rather uh, on the rise. Uh, so this is also important to prevent uh, this uh, uh, this uh, um, dangerous processes of denying the Holocaust or, or any negative uh, distortions uh, of uh, uh, the facts uh, or elements of Holocaust history happening worldwide. Uh, we have to be uh, alerted. We have to, uh, I believe, as uh, uh, educators, as researchers, we uh, have to remind uh, again and again what happened. And uh, hopefully um, uh, we will contribute also to understanding uh, uh, um, certain dangerous actions today. Uh, uh, even recently, we could observe uh, the cases of uh, Holocaust uh, denial and distortion. Uh, we see the war going on across the border from Poland. And uh, um, one of the elements that it's used as the political weapon is denying history. It's this uh, distortion of the history. So we cannot allow it to happen. We have to educate a future generation. Well, the, the challenge before us is all the more urgent uh, as the number of survivors uh, just because of the biological clock uh, dwindles. Um, and uh, we have relied uh, for all of these years on these um, first person testimonies of those who experience this barbarity. And so now as we as we move even further away from the Holocaust, you're, you're right, the the burden on historians, uh, on Jewish community leaders, on educators um, is uh, is going to increase. And we have to be uh, prepared uh, to meet that uh, challenge. Uh, now, B'nai B'rith relaunched in Poland about 15 years ago. I was present for the, the relaunch uh, in Warsaw. What can you tell us about its revival and about the revival of Jewish life in Poland? Uh, definitely is uh, part of the uh, wide spectrum of Jewish uh, activities and uh, organizations in Poland today. And this revival of Nebrith uh, activities, uh, it's certainly happening in like the uh, whole chain of reviving other activities uh, like uh, religious diversity, like political activism, like social activism and uh, uh, educational initiatives. This process started um, um, at the late of the 1980s, uh, still during the communist uh, time in Poland, uh, but uh, we can see the proper revival uh, happening only since the 90s. Uh, it was uh, possible thanks to the support of uh, uh, international Jewish organizations, including, including uh, um, American uh, Jewish organizations, 
uh, of all kinds that supported the revival of Jewish life, that educated local leaders how to establish the whole new infrastructure of Jewish life. And I believe uh, Bnei Brit is part of this uh, infrastructure, essential part of uh, Bnei, of uh, the revival of Jewish life. Uh, of course, this is also the platform for uh, Jewish intelligentsia in Poland uh, and for um, uh, increasing the role of uh, 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 leaders, uh, not only in the community, uh, in the Jewish community, but also to be the voice of the community uh, to a more uh, general Polish society and international society. So uh, since 2007, uh, we we have this uh, new organization, uh, um, I mean, new old organization in Poland, revived or re-established uh, in Poland, but uh, uh, it's uh, part of the process that continues. Uh, we still have new institutions being established, uh, uh, students' organizations that were opened uh, um, uh, not so long ago um, are part of this whole uh, spectrum of um, Jewish life. So uh, we are completing the And process. finally, uh, how can people learn more about your work, um, Poland's modern Jewish history, um, where where can they go? Is there a website for your institute? Uh, where should people go to find out more information on the kinds of things we've been discussing here today? Uh, most of the uh, most of the work is uh, uh, is available online. Uh, we have the Institute of Jewish Studies at Jagiellonian University website. We publish uh, uh, some uh, new materials online. Um, uh, some of the works are available uh, at the website of Galicia Jewish Museum in Krakow. Especially the uh, info information about the exhibitions and educational projects. Uh, also, JCC Krakow is uh, uh, promoting all kind of local initiatives uh, uh, and uh, last but not least uh, anywhere on YouTube uh, social media you can find lectures uh, articles and uh, chapters uh, that were published either by me or my my colleagues well dr. Gavron we're grateful for all of the important research uh, that you've done on B'nai B'rith and the history and culture of Jews in Poland and your dedication to Jewish studies and causes. We really value your efforts and appreciate your being with us today. Thank you so much. Well, thank you again to my guest, Dr. Edita Gavron, for joining us and to you for tuning in to our podcast, Conversations with B'nai B'rith. We hope you enjoyed what you've heard. If you did, please leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and share this episode with friends and others. For all of our latest content, and if you haven't already, follow or subscribe to Conversations with B'nai B'rith wherever you get your podcasts, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and like us on Facebook. This is your host, Dan Mariashin. Until next time, take care, everyone. <laughs>